Welcome to Lead On, a program where we talk about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I'm Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, and I've been a pastor, a church planter, a denominational executive, and a seminary president for about 40 years now. And over those years, I've learned a few things about how to take the biblical worldview and theological perspective of Christian faith and bring that to bear on the practical issues of ministry leadership. That's what this program is about. It's not really a Bible preaching program or even what you might call a teaching program. It's more of an application program designed to help you think through what are some problems we face as ministry leaders and what are some solutions that speak into those problems. Well, today I want to talk about defining distinctive Christian leadership. Now, there are so much said today about leadership. There are books that come out almost every single day by someone telling us something about leadership, and many of them are quite helpful. A lot of them, though, are written from a secular perspective, and Christians read those and try to bring those perspectives into our work, and again, that sometimes is helpful because some of those perspectives uh, can give us some guidance and some assistance along the way. But quite frankly, some of what's out there in the secular world about leadership is really uh, counter-Christian and really not able to be used by those of us in ministry leadership roles. So reading all this different kind of material and looking at all these different uh, webinars and listening to all these different podcasts and trying to take in all this information caused me a few years ago to ask, start, to ask myself this question. What is distinctive about Christian leadership? How are we different? You know, we do a lot of the same things that other leaders do. We try to lead major change. We do strategic planning. We administrate personnel. We plan budgets. We uh, allocate resources and make significant decisions about the directions of our churches and organizations. Yeah, I get that. As ministry leaders, we do so many things that are common not only to each other, but also common to all leaders in all fields, Christian or secular, doesn't really matter. So if all of this commonality exists, then the question kept coming back to me, what is distinctive about Christian leadership? What is it that really makes us different? I'm going to try to answer that question on the show today. Joseph Rost wrote an academic definition of leadership in his book, Leadership for the 21st Century. He said, Leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real changes that reflect their mutual purposes. I think that is an excellent academic definition of leadership. But notice it has no qualifiers. It could be a definition of leadership in a military context, in a religious context, in a corporate context. It could even be a definition of leadership bringing about mutual purposes that are really destructive, like terrorism in our world. The people that are in charge of that, those movements and those organizations, they certainly are leaders, just in a way that we might find very destructive or even defective. So if this academic definition of leadership, that leadership is an influence relationship among leaders and followers who intend real change according to mutual purposes is true, then what aspect of it must be uniquely defined from a Christian point of view in order for us to be distinctly Christian leaders? Let's just start with the first phrase. Leadership is an influence relationship. 
When you read all kinds of books about leadership, secular or spiritual, you'll find this as a common theme. Leadership is an influence relationship. So, distinctly Christian leadership brings about influence in ways that are Christian. And there are some that really are Christian. So that got me thinking about what's at the core of our influence of others and of what drives us, motivates us, and gives us the, uh, the, 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 the guidance, if you will, to know how to do this. Well, the answer to the question is that there is something distinctive about the motive of Christian leadership. There's something distinctive about the attitude of Christian leadership. And there's something very distinctive about the strategy of Christian leadership. So when you think about motive, attitude, strategy, those three things inform how we conduct ourselves in the context of maintaining influence relationships among leaders and followers who intend real change according to our mutual purposes. What drives all of this, what Christianizes the definition, if you will, is our motive, our attitude, and our strategy. So we're going to do many things that are common to all other leaders. Like I said earlier in the show, we're going to make budgets. We're going to make personnel decisions. We're going to plan out uh, strategic uh, objectives. We're going to chart out uh, tactical goals and plans to get to those goals. These are things leaders do all the time. It's not the what we do, but the how we do it that is distinctly Christian. So let's focus now for the rest of this show on motive, attitude, and strategy. The motive of Christian leadership is love. Now that certainly stands in stark contrast to secular leadership. Secular leadership is motivated by greed, narcissistic attempts to gain notoriety, selfishness, or you might say, oh, it's higher than that. It's more positive than that. It's about making money for other people or about making a name for your organization. Yeah, I get it. It can be any of those things. But none of those things are love. You know, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 39, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second commandment is to love people. Now, when you read that passage, Matthew 22, 34 to 39, in context, you'll discover who Jesus was addressing. Jesus was speaking that day to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day. So while love God and love your neighbor is a great instruction for everyone in the Christian movement, it was specifically addressed to leaders. Therefore, the foundational motive for Christian leadership is love, love for God, love for people. It's what gets us out of bed every morning. We love God and we love people. It's what sustains us through difficulties in our workplaces. We love God and we love people. 
is what drives us to make decisions, not in our own self-interest or even in the interest of our organization or certainly not in the interest of our reputation or gaining notoriety. No, we make decisions based on our love for God and our love for people. So the proper leadership motive is love. And this is distinctly Christian. There is no other religion, no other secular theory, no other leadership school of thought. There's no other leadership influence or leadership training or leadership foundation that calls you to have love as your motive except Christian leadership. So the first thing that makes us distinct as Christian leaders is our motive. We love God and we love people. Now, the second distinctive of Christian leadership is our attitude. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the Bible says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a powerful phrase. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and became a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He demonstrated the attitude of humility, and we are called in this passage to emulate him, and in doing so, adopt the proper attitude, our demeanor, our perspective on our leadership. Now, in this passage, Jesus models the true meaning of humility. Now, listen closely. Humility is using your position and privileges to benefit others. It's sacrificing your self-interest to meet the needs of of others. Now, let me say that again, because that is not what people typically think of when they think of humility and the definition thereof. Jesus models true humility, which is using your position and privileges to benefit others and sacrificing self-interest to meet the needs of others. Now, listen again to the passage. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, and here it is, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus had a very unique position and privilege. He was God. But he humbled himself set aside his own self-interest, and died on the cross to benefit others. Now, this is so vital because sometimes as people get more and more leadership responsibility and more and more leadership notoriety and more and more leadership uh, uh, popularity, the question is often, how can that same person demonstrate humility? Well, if your definition of humility is doing base service or 
putting yourself down or criticizing yourself or trying to uh, demean your accomplishments, if that's what you think uh, equals humility, then it's not very likely a person in those kind of roles will ever demonstrate true humility because those things are really not part of what those roles entail. But listen now, if true humility is using position and privilege to benefit others, then get this, the higher your leadership responsibility and the more authority and opportunity you're given, the greater humility you can demonstrate because humility is setting aside your power, your privilege, your position for your own benefit, setting aside your self-interest and using everything you have for the benefit of others. Now, as I say in the introduction to this program every week, I'm a president of a seminary. I have a 150 employees and 2,000 students, and at least in my context, I've, I'm respected and valued, and uh, people show me a lot of deference in my organization, and as they respect the office of the president, they've extended that respect to me. So what does humility look like for me? It's not saying, well, I'm not president, and there's not really anything I can do, and I don't want to draw any attention to myself, and I don't have any power really, and I don't really have any authority that's not humility. Humility is saying, I'm president. I have power. I have authority. I have influence. I have respect. Now, will I use those assets to benefit myself, or will I use them to benefit the people who work with me? Humility is making the decision to use the position, the prestige, the power, the authority, the respect, everything you have as a pastor, an elder, a president, a deacon, an executive director, a ministry leader, a program director, it's taking everything you have and using it for the benefit of the people you lead. That is true humility. The wrong understanding of humility is debasing yourself, putting yourself down, talking about your inadequacy. That's not what Jesus did. No, in Philippians 2, we learn that real humility is seeing yourself as God sees you, accepting God's appraisal of you, making the choice to use all that God has given you for the benefit of others, and fulfilling the mission God has assigned to you to do just that. You know, in my book, The Character of Leadership, I wrote this about John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was called by Jesus the greatest man who ever lived, and this is what I wrote about him. John the Baptist is a good example of humility. When asked, what can you tell us about yourself? He did not hesitate to answer. He did not drop his head or scuff his toe. He simply answered the question. John said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John later added, he's the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. Of course, he was speaking about Jesus, who he had come to introduce. Yet in spite of Jesus' greatness and his smallness by comparison, John still owned both his identity and mission. Jesus' preeminence did not invalidate John's role in God's overall plan. Real humility is following the example of John the Baptist, who said, I know who I am, and I know what I'm here to do, and it's not about me. It's about the one who's coming after me, the one I'm here to serve. Real humility and leadership, and this is distinctly 
Christian about leadership, real humility is embracing the power, the privilege, the authority, the respect, the prestige you have, embracing it, and then using all of it to benefit others, not yourself. That is so countercultural today. So many people today are told that leadership is about making a name for yourself, gaining more Twitter followers, getting more notoriety across social media, making more money, having nicer things. That's not Christian leadership. Christian leadership is about using everything you have for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did, and that's how he was described in Philippians chapter 2. So, first of all, it's distinctly Christian to be motivated by love. Second, it's distinctly Christian to have an attitude of humility. And then third, it's distinctly Christian as a leader to have a strategy based on service. Now, Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, and then again in John 13, there's another story illustrating this. Mark, 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, Jesus is asked about what makes people great in his kingdom. And he replies, the greatest among you is the servant of all. So having a servant attitude or a servant's perspective is essential for a Christian leader. Now, again, this is often more a perspective from which we lead than necessarily the tasks we do every day. But we come to our task thinking of ourselves as servants who are there to make a difference and particularly to make a difference in the lives of others. Now, if you're motivated by love and your attitude shows humility, how then can you develop this servant's perspective on ministry leadership? Well, let me give you some suggestions. Here are some practical things you can do to facilitate a servanthood perspective on your work as a leader. First, choose to do a dirty job. Now, a lot of leaders come to work every day in nice clothes. Find a way to get dirty every now and then in your organization. A number of years ago, I participated in a ministry that was building a large facility, and we were doing a lot of it by volunteer labor. We were working over a holiday weekend once, and we had a group of men come from some different churches to help us with the task. And the particular task that week was to throw sheets of plywood up and get them nailed onto the uh, roof as the decking material so the roofers could install the roof a few days later. This was uh, not really technical work. It was just back-breaking work as we had to uh, take the covers off these stacks of plywood and mark them for the nail guns that were going to be used on the roof and then throw them up onto a, 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 sca a scaffolding and then the scaffolding up onto the roof. And we had to just stand there and do this hour upon hour. Well, after about half a day, one of the fellows asked me, he said, what do you do when you're not throwing uh, plywood on a roof? And I said, oh, I work here for this organization. He said, really? What do you do here? And I said, oh, I'm the, I'm the executive director. And his face fell and his jaw dropped. And he said, what are you doing out here putting plywood on the roof? And I said, well, that's what needs to be done today. So I'm just trying to be helpful. Word got around. And more and more guys came around to me and said, man, I didn't have any idea who you were, or that you were the boss of this thing. Thanks for being out here working with us. 
you know, I didn't put plywood on the roof every day. That's not my job. My job was to be the executive director. I had a broad oversight responsibility for the whole work that had to be done. I had to keep my attention focused there. But on that weekend, the main job that needed to be done was plywood had to be put on the roof, and that was a dirty job. Hot job, stinky job, smelly job, sweaty job, but it had to be done. Now, again, leaders don't have the responsibility to do that kind of work every day. We're leaders. We're supposed to be doing our part of the task. But occasionally, occasionally, it's okay to show up and do a dirty job and just remind yourself of a servant's perspective. Second, choose to do some work with your colleagues. You know, I say here at the seminary that there's no job that the executive team is too good to do. And if I ever hear an executive here say, well, I'm too good for that, or that's not really my job, or that's beneath me, well, that's probably not going to be a good day for that executive because I don't tolerate that kind of attitude. There's no job we're too good to do. Now, there's some jobs we're asked to not do and to focus on other things so the seminary can advance and get its work done. I get that. But sometimes it's important to just show up and work with your colleagues. A few years ago, we did a major move of our seminary. And for the six weeks we were moving the seminary, I showed up every day in jeans and a T-shirt. I moved file cabinets and books and moved furniture and loaded trucks and unloaded trucks. And if you just showed up and watched us in action, you couldn't tell who the president was and who the custodians were because the whole team of the whole seminary was involved in that work. Choosing to show up and work with your colleagues shows servanthood. Choose to work anonymously and sometimes to serve secretly. I can't tell you any stories about this because they wouldn't be secret anymore. When I first moved into executive leadership, a mentor told me, you're going to get a lot of notice for a lot of things you do. People will write stories about you and post your picture and do things that uh, give you a lot of accolades. And he said, here's what you're going to figure out pretty quickly. You're going to do some things in secret that nobody knows about that will actually be more meaningful to you than the things in public that people give you credit for. I thought, huh. Now these years later, I can tell you he was exactly right. When I have the privilege of serving secretly, quietly, anonymously, and helping to get something done that no one else really knows about, it reminds me I'm not here to do things just so people notice me. I'm here to serve, to do what's needed, to help be helpful to people and to do what's right. And then finally, another way to develop a servant's perspective is to choose to serve a critic. One of the hardest things in leadership is dealing with criticism. I'll do a show about that someday. I've got a presentation on that that you might find helpful. But one of the hardest things to do in ministry is deal with critics. And one of the most challenging disciplines that you have to maintain is serving critics who are a part of your ministry or your church or your denomination, or your organization, who come at you and yet are still part of your family, serving them. I think about people who've written me critical letters when I was a pastor and then had a death in their family, and I had to show up and provide the service they needed to help them with their grief. I think about pastors who've criticized me and then called me and asked for a scholarship for someone from their church to come to seminary. I could go on and on with these stories of people who have criticized me in various capacities and finding a way to continue to serve them helps shape my attitude of service and give me a servant's perspective. Well, today on the show, we've tried to talk about what makes 
some leadership and some leaders distinctly Christian. There's so much that Christian leaders do that's just the same as secular leaders. I get that. But there ought to be some things about us that define us and make us different. The difference is not in the things we do. The difference is in the motive, the attitude, and the perspective from which we lead. The motive is love. The attitude is humility. The perspective, the strategy, if you will, is service. Do those things and you will be a distinctly Christian leader. Put them into practice as you lead on.